Good morning. I'm Donna Quinn. And for the next half hour, you'll be listening to Talk of Our Towns. Today, we are going to find out a lot about sea otters um, and the introduction of sea otters, the reintroduction of sea otters to the Oregon coast by the Alaka Alliance. What is the Alaka Alliance? And what does the word Alaka mean? It is the Chinook classic word for sea otter. And today, I'm very fortunate to have John Goodell. He is the Director of Science and Policy for the Alaka Alliance. Thank you so much for being here, John. Well, thank you, Donna. Thank you. And uh, before we begin talking about the Alaka Alliance and the reintroduction of this keystone species, and we'll find out what that means and why it's so important, um, let's introduce you to the listening audience, please. So please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a biologist. Uh, I have worked kind of throughout North America, but I've been in Oregon for the last 10 years or so. I've, I've worked both in terrestrial wildlife and, and aquatic, but mostly with birds and mammals and also as a museum curator. So a little background in natural history interpretation and outreach. And uh, why did you choose to become a wildlife biologist? Well, I grew up in the in the kind of the woods in a rural part of New England, and I really enjoyed fishing and, and hunting later and birding. And, uh, you know, it was where I wanted to be and, and wildlife, wildlife biology was sort of the perfect match for my preferred lifestyle. Yes, that's great, John, um, because um, we need people who are studying and who are telling us, you know, what's happening with wildlife, because right now, the human impacts and uh, climate change, there's so many things that are affecting our wildlife right now. So, John, what is the ALAKA, and that is spelled E-L-A-K-H-A, -A, pronounced ALAKA, what is the ALAKA Alliance about? How did it come about? Yeah, so the Alaka Alliance was really the brainchild of, of David Hatch, who the late David Hatch, who was a member of the uh, Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians and, and on the Tribal Council and had an, really a deep interest in cultural heritage and, and had uh, in communication with some archaeologists on the North Oregon coast, actually in one particular archaeological dig near Astoria, where in the middens, the archaeological digs that are excavating uh, middens from pre prehistoric times, found, uh, they found an atlatl throwing stick made out of a sea otter bone. It was most likely like a femur, a larger bone. And it, uh, those of you, those of the listeners that don't know what an atlatl is, it's a sort of a thrown arrow. It's, a, it's an arrow almost the size of a spear that's thrown with a short stick to add leverage. And it was a main hunting tool uh, for indigenous people before the uh, evolution of the, the bow and arrow. And so he, that became, he became interested in that and it led down this rabbit hole of, of thinking about, well, sea otters used to be in Oregon. Why are they not here anymore? We, or maybe we should consider reintroducing them. And unfortunately he passed in 2016, but uh, the Alaka Alliance was sort of reformed with the leadership of Bob Bailey, who's a coastal marine policy whiz, frankly. And he, along with a, a new board, pulled the organization back into in with some new momentum and uh developed a strategic plan and then and then secured the 501c3 status and, and really pushed forward with this vision of restoring sea otters to the Oregon coast and maybe we should talk about the history of sea otters and why sea otters are an important species so i know that you are you do educational outreach so uh if folks don't understand like why do we not have sea otters on the Oregon coast. I mean, they were so 
uh, prolific on the Aleutian, the Aleutian Islands, Alaska, all of that. Well, so what's the history of of the sea otter and and the fur trade? Yeah, so really a great example of what um, ecologists sometimes call refer to as shifting baseline. So this idea that generations that are living today are aware of the conditions that they know from growing up, but not necessarily aware of the what you'd call the more natural ecological conditions a century ago or longer. And what was interesting about sea otters is that in many ways, at least with the West Coast, they were the first, uh, first native species to be largely wiped out really before the major Euro-American uh, migration and settlement in the West really almost occurred. So that's what why they're sort of off the radar maybe to Oregonians is that they were, the population was largely removed due to fur hunting by Russian and, and Euro, European and, and certainly some American fur traders that would, would take ships up the, the coast of the Pacific and would hunt sea otters for their furs. And at the time, the sea otter fur was the most valuable fur in the world. This incredibly dense, uh, dense, you know, the dense hairs on a sea otter pelt is incredibly, incredibly warm and, and incredibly luxurious. And so that, that price of that pelt really drove their decline from starting in the late 1700s, so the very early impact, and really continuing through to the 1840s. By the 1850s, I would, we, we think that most sea otters were essentially gone from the Oregon coast and certainly other parts of the Pacific, but by it was until 1910, 1911, where the last documented sea otter was, was taken from the Oregon coast. And perhaps we should um, let our listening audience know a little bit more about the sea otter itself, uh, you know, the spe their species. And I mean, they are one of the smartest species on the planet, actually. I mean, when I started looking at some of the videos on your website and and, and there are other videos about sea otters um, online, I learned so many things about them and how smart they are and how social they are. And right now, and I found out there are only three sea otters uh, in Oregon at the moment, they're at the Oregon Coast Aquarium in Newport. Yeah. Uh, but tell us about sea otters. Yeah, so sea otters are um, related to the weasel family. So like a river otter, there are different species than a river otter, but a different genus actually. But they're related to the skunks and weasels uh, of, of the animal kingdom, and they are the largest of the otters. They can weigh between 60 to almost 100 pounds. Uh, they are, of all the 13 otter species in the world, the sea otter is only one of two that are completely tied to marine habitats. In other words, they don't need a source of fresh water. They can live in the ocean, in the subtitle parts of the ocean. And so in North America, they are the, the one species that is com completely tied to, to marine habitats. They eat a lot of uh, invertebrates and, and shellfish. They have an incredibly high metabolism. Unlike a seal, a pinnipeds, they don't have these this large layer of blubber. So they have to consume a ton of food to maintain their body temperature in this cold water climate to the order of 25 to 30% of their body weight per day. Uh, so they're a voracious uh, predator of, of things like sea urchins. And uh, they have one pup a year. Um, they are, were not, their original range was from Baja, Mexico, all the way through up to the Aleutian Islands and then back over to Russia and the Japanese archipelago or the Northern extent of the Japanese archipelago. And um, 
you know, the, what's been what's fascinating about the sea otter is its relationship to the kelp habitat and also the eelgrass estuary habitat and, and what in the, the work of in the field of ecology, sea otters are actually one of the best studied uh, animal species with respect to the, their ecology. Um, the, the first studies happened in the 70s and they, they've gone on till today, dozens and dozens of studies that have verified and repeated and, and documented how they essentially benefit kelp habitat by removing those kelp herbivores. So a sea urchin, for example, is a kelp herbivore. It moves around the ocean floor and if left unchecked, it can consume large uh, portions of kelp and, and essentially become an urchin barren, a, a forest floor covered with nothing but urchins. As we know, kelp is very important to fisheries, salmon, forage fish, rockfish. And it, on the other side of the coin in the estuaries, we know sea otters have a very important role in helping seagrass uh, thrive and grow because seagrass without uh, without any of these important sea slugs or snails that graze the blades of seagrass and keep the, the algae off of seagrass. Without those in there, seagrass really struggles. There's little green crabs and the, the invasive green crab and rock crab that will often eat those uh, sea slugs, those, those uh, algae cleaners. And so when you have sea otters in the estuary and in seagrass beds, they eat a lot of those crabs, those small crabs, and, and, and therefore release this population of sea slugs and snails to clean the, the, the blades of the seagrass. So it's a sort of a nuanced story, but kelp and seagrass are two habitat types that sea otters are known to be uh, the keystone species with respect to those habitat types. So when they're there, they transform the nature of those habitats and make them more productive and resilient. Right. I When I did a little research um, after talking with you initially. Um, I, it said, you know, one of the places that I, I there was a story on, you know, uh, OPV, I think about this. Um, and it said sea otters are a keystone species, meaning their role in the environment has a greater effect than other species. As top predators, they're critical to maintaining the balance of near-shore ecosystems, such as kelp forests, embayments, estuaries, and, and it talked again about what you said about the, how sea urchins can overpopulate the seafloor. And so it actually benefits finfish too, you said. Yeah, we, what we know from the research uh, on sea otters when they're there and not there is that when sea otters return to an area and they benefit obviously the kelp habitat, there's approximately a six-fold increase in, in uh, fish harvest, for example. They, uh, if, if you can imagine two different states, and so with a healthy sea otter population in a kelp ecosystem, they help maintain and grow that kelp habitat. And that has this top-down trickle effect, so to speak, to all of the, the, the marine life that depend on kelp. And that's any, everything from salmon to rockfish to lingcod to gray whales and more, and even, even seabirds. And when they're not there over time, you have an increase in this urchin barren. And so certainly urchin barrens, you could call it a natural state, in some respects, but without sea otters, it, it becomes the stable state. And the real linchpin here is the very unique aspect of sea urchin life history. And what that is, is if you can imagine a prey population living in a, like a bunch of rabbits, say for example, in a shrubby area, and if their prey densities and increases to a certain extent, they might eat all the food. And even without a predator, they eventually will run out of food, the spread disease, and they will crash as a population. But what sea urchins are different, they can go into a dormant state for decades, even at the life length of a human lifespan, 
and essentially naughty, not really move much, but still be a, sort of alive, like it's almost a zombie, and they could live there in perpetuity. And so that's what's so difficult about kelp, is that if you lose kelp and you replace it with an urchin baron, that baron can be a stable state, and it's much less productive and valuable for the marine ecosystem than the kelp state, if that makes sense. Yes, and uh, obviously, I mean, sea otters, I, I, I think I heard that the sea otter, uh, sea otters at the aquarium are one of the most popular exhibits. I mean, there's something that we relate to. I mean, sea otter mothers, they sleep in the water, they carry their babies on, uh, you know, on their tummies. Uh, and I learned that see, baby otters are called pups, they can also be called kits or kittens. Uh, female otters are sows, males are boars, and um, and otter groups are called a family, a bevy, a lodge, or a romp. And um, a group of otters in the water is most often called a raft, a raft of otters. It would be amazing to see sea otters because not only do local people, I mean, I think would local people appreciate being able to, to see them and have them in the waters because of their benefits. But um, I think you talked about the fact that um, even, I mean, it's a tourism kind of draw as well. Yeah, it's, it's potential benefits to fisheries, fin fisheries, potential benefits to tourism. There's a, also a significant cultural connection with Oregon Coast tribes. And I, and I don't wanna speak for the tribes at all, but there are, we have several le um, leaders on the coastal tribes on our board that are, that are interested in support sea otter reintroduction. And it's a longstanding cultural heritage and iconic species in, in, in their communities. So there's there's definitely some benefits. There are some concerns, as you as you probably uh, you know became aware, to do with their localized impacts on shellfish harvest, which is something that we're, we take really seriously. And looking at this, we we pulled in a third party group of scientists to conduct a feasibility study and an economic impact assessment to really drill down into some of these questions of pros and cons, and to evaluate well if sea otters came to this particular locale on the Oregon coast you know, could it have a negative impact on, say, commercial crabbing or recreational crabbing or, or what have you? And, and we want to really do that due diligence before we move forward with a, with a restoration project. Right. And there are sea otters now, um, you know, and they're coming back and, you know, after being just decimated um, in Alaska, there are some in, uh, on, in Northern California on the coast there. Um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Talk of Our Towns. I'm your host, Donna Quinn, and today I am so pleased to have John Goodell. He is the Director of Science and Policy with the Alaka Alliance, which is a 501c3 nonprofit looking to, at the pers at perspective, sea otter reintroduction to the Oregon coast, working with coastal tribes in, to benefit kelp conservation, et cetera. Um, John, one of the things I, I learned when I was looking uh, up a little more about sea otters is that um, there, there, there are some dangers to them. Obviously, we have you know oil pollution and we have climate change and all of that. But, but something that I didn't even think about is our containers of flushable kitty litter, um, because there's some kind of parasite that if you flush cat feces down the toilet, it could pass through wastewater uh, wastewater treatment facilities and harm sea otters. So uh, that's a really important thing for people to know. I think. Yeah, there's different uh, risk factors associated with sea otter populations. One of them is is water pollution in variety of forms. So, and especially sea otters that are in estuaries are more vulnerable to downstream pollution than those that are in the open ocean. Uh, but it's definitely water quality and, and, and is a big issue with sea otters. 
course, the more eelgrass we have and the more, you know, healthier estuary habitat we have, the better for sea otters. But there's also some other risk factors um, there, such as even the change in patterns and movements of great white sharks. What we know about the California population, there's an isolated population in California, central California. And there's due to some shifts in ocean temperature, there's a movement of juvenile great whites into this area that has sea otters. But there's also just an increase in, in the great whites associated with the success of the Marine Mammal Act and more seals and sea lions. And so otters that are naturally dispersing or would like to naturally disperse north and south are running into a lot of shark pressure. So that's sort of a novel new condition that scientists are just understanding. Uh, so just to give the listeners some context there, if you could imagine a more or less, you know, not an unbroken line of sea otters from Alaska to Baja, Mexico, but basically a healthy populations were, were found across all of that region. And now we just have several like kind of more isolated populations, the central California coast, the, uh, and then you have an 800 mile gap until you get to the Olympic Peninsula where there's a, where there's a population there in Washington, then a population on the Haida Gwaii in BC in that area, really a healthy population in Southeast Alaska. And then as we get to the Aleutian Islands, there's some actually recent declines in that population on some of the Aleutian Islands. So that hopefully that can give listeners some context of that what the Lock Alliance is really interested in is, you know, that 800 mile gap is a significant gap in the historical range of sea otters and Oregon represents, a, a, you know, a nice chunk of that. So we think it could have, our proposal could have important consequences to connecting sea otter populations in the future. So, um, John, it sounds like, I mean, the, the benefits of sea otter reintroduction on the Oregon coast seem to very much outweigh any uh, other issues. So where are you in creating this plan and, and what can the public do to help? Yeah, well, we want to take a careful look at that, those, those pros and cons. And, and again, that's a third party group of scientists. So they're sort of, they have the ball and they're going to look at these questions in more detail. But this, uh, these plans are going to be due to come out in a draft form for public release. And this is an economic impact assessment, as I mentioned, in a feasibility study. And those, they will be released in August, and we're certainly going to welcome a lot of comment and feedback. And one of the ways the, the public can help is to, if they're involved with an organization or a business, and even as an individual, to, um, you know, to voice their support, uh, hopefully, for, for that, for Sea Otters returning to Oregon, to, um, you know, and also to to talk to decision makers, um, you know, people in marine policy positions of authority and, and policy and land use to, 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 you know, voice your support to them also. And to check out, you know, it's definitely worth checking out more of the resources we have on our website if you want to learn more. That's another area to, to dive into. You can take a really deep dive into our website, into our, uh, you know, podcast, uh, bank of podcasts that we have and our YouTube channel where we have some webinars, recorded webinars to learn more. Well, it is a fascinating thing to learn about sea otters. I didn't realize that they're one of the smartest species on the planet. They, they, they actually learn how to play basketball. They know how to stack cups. They, they use rocks to open clams. And, um, and they are, uh, again, a keystone species. So um, the tribes obviously are very are supportive and, and you have a board of directors. You, have, uh, you are the director of science and policy. So when, and, and you're just trying to let more people know what a LACA Alliance is, 
And, uh, and if you want to go to the website, it is E-L-A-K-H-A, E-L-A-K-H-A alliance.org. And ALACA, again, is the uh, classic Chinook word for sea otter. Um, John, because in Astoria, some folks may see uh, otters swimming along in the river, but a sea otter and a river otter are two different species, as we talked about. Not that's right. That, that's a common the, the misidentification. And I will say, however, that there are otters, sea otters that are occasionally seen on the Oregon coast, and they're most likely sub-adult males that are making like a long dispersal south from the Washington population. Because there's no sea otters here, they, they disappear, essentially. So I, with that caveat that occasionally sea otters are seen in Oregon, the, a lot of the, the sightings turn out to be river otters. And the North American river otter is essentially a, a tied to fresh water. It, it can't exist without a, a source of fresh water, but it is seen in marine habitats occasionally. Like a, a river otter will come out of the estuary or a river on the coast range. It'll go to the beach. Uh, it will forage in mo more in the intertidal zone than the subtidal zone, which is a little deeper, but they certainly will forage and go back into the into the where they came from. And they are one way to tell them apart is they're much smaller. So a, a river otter is typically 12 to, to 20 pounds, you know, co a common weight for a river otter is maybe only 15 to 18 pounds, uh, maybe 20 pounds. And they uh, are very swift on the ground. So when you see them moving on the ground, they're very agile, they can run. Uh, their feet are all about the same size. They have a long tail, very long tail. And uh, whereas the sea otter does not move very well on the ground, it, its rear feet are more like a seal's feet. They're, they're kind of paddles and they're not, they're sort of awkward on the ground. They're much bigger, sort of three, three four times the size in terms of body mass. And, uh, and when you see their prints, as I mentioned, those rear feet really are unique when they're on this uh, print on the on the beach. So, you know, there are sea otters occasionally seen migrating through or dispersing through, but but mostly the observations are, are river otter. So right now it appears that the Alaka Alliance feels this is the time, this is the right time to do this. You're having this exhausting, exhaustive scientific uh, research done for the plan, which will come out in August. Um, what other things do you think people should know about about this reintroduction uh, on the Oregon coast of sea otters. Yeah, I think one, one angle to think about is this idea of, you know, ecosystem stability. So when we have stresses on the ecosystem, like ocean warming, we have, you know, I mean, climate, climate change is a fact and, and the, the effects on the ocean are definitely happening. Ocean acidification is happening. Uh, and you know, the, a lot, various impacts to these systems, having an intact native species, a suite of intact native species is really important to buffer the, the swings of, of, of sort of, you know, impacts, so to speak. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, the sunflower sea star, which some people may, may or may not have heard about, is this large sea star that is a predatory sea star, and it, one of its main prey is urchins. And the, in about 2014, the sunflower sea star population from Baja, Mexico to Alaska collapsed. It, it's sort of like the, you know, the mountain lion disappearing from the North American West from, from you know, Northern Canada to, to Mexico. And it was a startling event and there's still some debate about the cause, but it looks like it's connected probably to ocean warming. Um, possibly it's, 
some they're not sure if it's a virus or, or or what have you but the collapse is so serious that it looks like it had a real impact on this dramatic loss of or increase in, in urchin barrens so we know that ocean warming affects kelp and the growth of kelp but we also know that if you don't have sea otters and then you don't have the other urchin predator or major urchin predator you're in a bad place and so i think the argument for sea otters is in some ways based on we need to return that resiliency we need to return that redundancy into the system so there's you know if we lose something like the sunflower sea star that there's a backup in the in the water right there's a check and balance system for sure and we didn't really get a chance to touch on wildlife disease but you know again and and there's more of that happening these days too um, but we actually just have a few minutes left, John. So I want to let you have this these few moments to to uh, let folks know how they can be involved, um, how they can learn more about sea otters and the reintroduction, the Alaka Alliance, and anything else that you'd like to say to the listening audience about this. Yeah, check out the website alakaalliance.org. Uh, you can learn a lot more about what we're up to in our plan. There's an opportunity to on the website to endorse our vision. Uh, which we'd appreciate from, from individuals and organizations. And uh, we have a library or an archive there with a lot of Seattle literature and also a podcast series, which is about nine podcasts that go take deep dives into all these, a lot of the topics we talked about today and more. Then check out our YouTube channel where we Alaka Alliance, just look, you know, enter the keyword search the Alaka Alliance and you'll find our YouTube channel where we have some recorded webinars and presentations. And consider making a donation. The, the funds go directly to uh, moving this vision forward. And um, we really would appreciate your support. And, uh, and then keep an eye out for our feasibility study and economic impact assessment or public release. As I mentioned, it's just really important for Oregonians that, that support this and that would want to see sea otters return to the Oregon coast to, to weigh in and, and to make, make their perspectives known, we would really appreciate it. Well, John, I'm so glad you're working with the tribes and I'm sure that, uh, and and I hope that all Oregonians will uh, educate themselves about this and visit the Alaka Alliance. And again, that is spelled E-L-A-K-H-A, -A, um, the Chinook classic word for sea otter. And John Cadell is a conservation biologist with the Alaka Alliance. And we've been talking with him for the last uh, half hour here on Talk of Our Towns. Thank you so much, John, and good on Thank the Alaga Alliance and for all the work you're doing. Um, I learned so much about sea otters that I'm, I'm a huge sea otter fan right now. So so I hope more people will look at your podcast and uh, will listen to the podcast and look at some of the videos. <clears throat> so thank you so much, John. And I want to thank all of you who are supporting our, our spring pledge drive. Um, Coast Community Radio, KMU, uh, and thank you for listening and for being part of this family for all the important work that's being done at the Telecom House. Um, Talk of Our Towns now airs uh, once a month. It's every, uh, the first Thursday of each month from 9 a.m. until 9.30. And I want to thank Nevada for making this possible, uh, technology and engineering, and also my gratitude to local talented banjo instructor, Michael Brun for his original theme music for this program. Until next week, find a moment for yourself today. In fact, right now, let's all take this moment to take a very deep breath. Sit.
slows things down. It's healthy for body, mind, and spirit. If you're stressed throughout the day, just remember to give yourself the opportunity to breathe with a very long exhale. And then with gratitude, focus on the things that are going well in your life. There will always be things that aren't going well. However, focus on those things that are with gratitude. And then give yourself a loving and compassionate hug or a pat on the back for being uniquely you. We're doing the best you can. Everyone is. Until we know better, we do what we do. And so you're doing the best you can. And for being here now in this moment, the only moment that exists, really, the now moment on the amazing planet we call Earth.